0: I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs, but how do you explain them to your customers?
1: Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup.
0: So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds?
1: Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio.
2: Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.
0: Hey, it's me, Lars Larson. Thanks for checking out my podcast, and be sure to tell a friend about The Lars Larson Show. Are you approaching retirement, or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement Account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars, you've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours.
2: Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit IRAAdvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's IRAAdvantage.com.
0: Welcome back to the Lars Larson show and guess what a federal judge has decided to remove the second amendment rights of more than 4 million people here in the Pacific Northwest. Now I'll get into the details on that and then I'm going to have Kevin Sterra join us a little bit later on this hour from the Oregon Firearms Federation and just remember the nonsense that is coming out of both states both Oregon and Washington not so much in Idaho. But both Oregon and Washington have gone absolutely crazy on those of us who choose to exercise a federal constitutional right. I'll give you details in a moment, but first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show, and happy Tuesday to you. Hope you get a chance to call, and if you don't, you can uh, take part in the show a number of different ways. If you want to dial in, it's 866-HEY-LARS, and naysayers, you always go to the head of the line, always have, always will on this program at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and all of those come to me, not to anybody else. I've got a great staff, but I do all my own email and if you want to vote in our twitter poll and this one's actually gun related and it comes out of a story uh in philadelphia although i'm kind of surprised that we haven't seen it yet here in the pacific northwest when you hear about all the stores that are facing ripoffs right and left and some of them are not the non-violent kind you know the load up a shopping cart full of stuff and just drive out of there or push out of the store No, some of these are violent attacks on retail stores, and they've happened in various parts of the Northwest. Well, I saw a story that indicated that one store owner at a gas stop in Philadelphia, he finally hired armed security. And not just armed security, but armed security with long guns, AR-15s. He said, I'm tired of all this nonsense. It's got to stop, and I'm going to protect my store. Okay, good how soon should Northwest retailers add armed security staff to their stores to deal with all the violent thefts and violent robberies that are happening? I would say yes to that. The police are not capable of doing the job, not with their current political leadership. And I'll get to some of that in just a moment because Seattle, I'm told by my friend Ari Hoffman, Seattle, who wrote, uh, Ari wrote a great piece at the post-millennial, Seattle's still going ahead with defunding the cops. I mean, despite the evidence of the last now almost three years of what a human disaster and a retail disaster this causes. I mean, I'm talking about people losing their lives, people getting hurt, and people just plain old getting ripped off. So should Northwest retailers and add armed security staff to their stores? I'd have to say yes. I don't think there's a realistic alternative. Today's Twitter poll can be found at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com, our website. So you can go to Twitter or website either way. Uh, It's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. So just to review where we stand today on a Tuesday, two days away from America's first statewide ban on buying guns by anybody and I include off-duty cops, off-duty military, after Thursday, you will not be able to buy a gun, at least a 10-plus. Now, I'll tell you what the judge decided, and it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, On Friday, one judge, a federal judge, Karen Emmergut, decided to hear two of the five lawsuits that have been brought against Measure 114, and she came out with a decision today, Immergut denied the motion to delay implementation of ballot measure 114 scheduled to go into effect on Thursday. Immergut denied the motion and said she will delay the state's permitting process for 30 days. And you say, well, what does that mean? It means you can still buy a gun after Thursday and you won't have to get a state permit that, by the way, does not exist today, nor does the process to make the permits or issue the permits it doesn't exist today, so that was kind of a no-brainer for Judge Immergut, you know, to say, "Well, you don't have to get the permit that isn't being issued anyway." Oh, and by the way, the classes that have to be state certi- or certified by law enforcement uh, that you have to take before you get the permit that doesn't exist, those aren't available either. So that was not too tough to do. But what does happen on Thursday? Can you still buy a gun? Yes, if anybody is still selling them. And yes, if you think you're going to clear the background check within the 30 days, because Judge Immergut only gave it 30 days and said, well, OK, I'll put it off until the uh, 8th. Instead of the 8th of December, it'll be the 8th of January. But at that point, the limits slam right down. You have to have a permit. And if I were a betting man, and I am occasionally, uh, I would have to say, you're not going to have a permit process in place in 30 days. The state of Oregon cannot possibly get it done by then. Now, the state police actually walked into court last Friday and said, well, we'll have the whole process ready to go by Thursday. Uh, And then later on that evening, the attorney general, uh, uh, Ellen Rosenblum, claims that she came to a realization after the hearing, only after they were not in front of the judge, did she say, Heck, there's no way in the world we're gonna get this done by Thursday. And then she filed paperwork late on a Sunday night, saying, "Uh, you know what, judge? We just realized it it came to us like a light bulb being turned on above our Democrat dimwit heads. We can't possibly get this done by Thursday. So the judge puts it off for 30 days. Now, I would imagine a number of stores will keep on selling. The problem is you also have to clear the permit process, not the permit process, the background check that Oregon already requires And by the way, the number of people waiting in line is somewhere in the range of 32,000 people. So I just say good luck with that. And then the minute that January the 8th rolls around and the 30-day delay has expired, at that point, you're messed up again. In the meantime, the rest of the law goes into effect, which means as a practical matter, if you have a gun capable of holding more than 10 rounds. doesn't matter how many bullets or shells you put in that gun. If it is capable of holding more than 10 rounds, it is illegal for you to have anywhere but your home or at a gun range or hunting. And in between, it has to be, to some extent, disassembled, magazine removed, locked in a box, gun put in a different locked box, then transported. I mean, all that nonsense slams down on Thursday, along with the rest of it. And we haven't even really begun to dig into some of the particulars of this, like the fact that they're going to keep a database of everybody who even applies to buy a gun. Yeah, that's right. And the state is going to maintain that database. And they are required by measure 114 to make the information public once a year. So if you thought, well, maybe I'll buy a gun. Oh, really? Well, your name's going to be in a database. Number one, a lot of people just say, okay, you've told me enough. You don't need to tell me more. I don't want to be in a state database. Number two, the state is required to make the database public once a year. Great. So all the thieves and 'er ne'er-do-wells out there, they can all just decide, you know what? We've got a list of potential thefts, uh, or we can avoid the houses with guns, or we can go to the houses say, we know this guy bought a gun two months ago, or this lady bought a gun two months ago. It sounds like we might be able to steal some guns. So the attorney general and the measure 114 and the folks from the Augustana Lutheran Church and all the rest of the people behind this crazy idea who've stolen your Second Amendment rights. And then they said, oh, by the way, we're going to give the thieves a nice little list of where you live and what your name is. Yeah. And the fact that you wanted to buy a gun. Coming up in the Northwest Nonsense: the thieves and liars of the Democrat Party, and will they give back five hundred thousand in ill-gotten gains? It's coming up next on the Radio Northwest Network.
3: That makes a lot of sense.
4: A lot of nonsense.
0: Right? You bloody well right. You know
5: he got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the Daily Dead, fish wrapper, or mainstream media bias.
0: The Democrat Party of Oregon keeps offering up proof that it's a bunch of liars and thieves. I'll back that up. Let's talk about the facts. Two months ago, the Democrat Party of Oregon Political Action Committee, so the DPOPAC, got its single biggest donation in history, $500,000. Democrats lied about the source and reported it as required to the state, saying it came from something called the Prime Trust. And then when OregonLive.com called them out, the lying jackass party admitted it came from FTX, the Stratospherically Bankrupt Cryptocurrency Exchange. Yep, the same FTX headed up by Sam Bankman-Fried, second biggest donor in the world this year to the National Democrat Party. Now, we know that FTX took a lot of that money from investors. Some of them just average folks investing their life savings, and they moved it to other failed investments and gave some of it away. And by the way, I got no dog in the fight. I don't own any FTX. I care about the people who do, though. So the half million bucks sitting in DPO's bank account, ill-gotten gains. I don't see any other way to see it. A number of big-name Democrats around America have already given back millions of dollars of this stolen dough. But not the Democrat Party of Oregon. They're hanging on to the cash they know got ripped off from the very folks that Democrats always claim they're looking out for. You know, the little guy, the average guy, the blue-collar worker? Yeah, that's what the DPO claims. Let's take a look at their actions. Donating the cash to some Democrat-aligned charity? Don't let them try that dodge governor like Tina Kotek won't take my questions, but some reporter who does get questions to her should demand, Tina, will you do the right thing and tell your party to give the money back to its rightful owners? Or will you just prove yourself to be another lying, thieving Democrat? Now, today's Daily Grill. Insane.
2: Are you?
5: Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb.
2: You're even dumber than I thought.
5: Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe
2: they're just really, really stupid.
5: Has been paved by trademark paving. Just pave it. serving Southwest Washington.
0: I'm gonna give today's Daily Grill to Lame Duck Governor Kate Brown, who thank God is out of office just over a month from now for gifting a kind of freedom to a convicted serial rapist by refusing to reclassify him as high risk. He is Richard Gilmore, he has been in prison a long time, he is a serial rapist, and yet he was classified as a low-risk. And so as a result, he will get freedom very, very soon. Kate Brown could have acted on that. She chose not to. Today's best email. But you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by the MEI Group, one of the largest heavy civil construction companies in the Pacific Northwest. Currently hiring and paying top dollar for project managers, engineers, and estimators. Group.com. William writes in, Lars... I'm sorry to say we've been out politic this entire election cycle. They've ignored all the problems they brought about, inflation, energy shortage, crime, open border, military weakness, and they just keep calling ours the threats to democracy, semi-Nazis, ultra mega extremists, indicted capital invaders, etc., combined with vicious personal attacks, such as those that are nonstop against... Herschel Walker. Perhaps Musk's opening up of Twitter is the small little thread that pulls their sweater apart if we will pull on it, signed William. Now, on that note, let me bring on my friend, a great friend of the show, Kevin Starrett, founder and executive director of the Oregon Firearms Federation. Kevin, uh, I told people my take on this judge's decision today, uh, Karen Immergut, who's decided to let most of ballot measure 114 become law on Thursday while holding up a tiny bit of it for about 30 days. Give me your take and tell people what this means as a practical matter for, for average folks who still might want to buy a gun for Christmas.
4: Maybe nothing. 30 seconds ago, I just got word that the state gave us a TRO in Harney County, so her her motion does not matter now. What? Hold,
0: hold on. The yep. state that, that you've been in the, state, I mean, the state, this, state's the state, being sued
4: by the state in five losses. Harney County just gave us a TRO and stopped the measure.
0: Oh, the state decided to give this up and just let it happen? Say- no, no, the
4: state courts, oh. we were in oh, the, the state, courts. Went into state court in Harney County okay. and they sided with us
0: against the state. Thank you. So a judge decided the entire law, there's a temporary restraining order on the law. Explain that, please.
4: Okay, so basically, what the judge in Harney County said was that this law is is restrained from enforcing. I just just got this uh, ballot measure of of December eighth, and it goes is, uh, I think it's for ten days, and will probably be extended if the state can't prove their case.
0: Wow, that's it's quite a, a
4: challenge, one page isn't it? Document, yeah, it's just one page document that just hit my desk.
0: All right. So how fast do you th- what the next move for the state will be to take that to the Oregon Court of Appeals since it's a state court issue?
4: Well, I'm not really certain exactly how that works. As I said, it's kind of pandemonium here at the moment because I just this second heard from the lawyers in Harney County. And so I think what has to happen is the state now has to go argue in Harney County Court. Now, I assume it can be appealed to the appeals court. But for the moment, we got a little breathing room here
0: you got 10 days, and that means the entire law statewide is held up for at least 10 days, correct?
4: Uh, That is what it says. So let me just be careful, because I want to make, I mean, it's definitely been held up. uh, Let's see if they have. It is further worded. Defenders showed a cause of any, on December 13th. So December 13th is why they have to say why a preliminary injunction should not enter and continue, which my understanding is that would mean it is now the state's problem to go back in and prove to the state the state, meaning the state of Oregon, to go back in and prove to the judge there why they should continue to shut down gun stores and turn people into criminals and ban shotguns and everything else that they've done.
0: And by the way, um I'm glad to hear that news, and thank you for bringing that I just decided to put you on at this time, and Kevin, you were nice enough to give me some time. It just happened to be a happy coincidence. But for people listening, a lot of people have asked me about shotguns, and that one gets a little complicated. The law says no nothing ten that is capable of readily being made 10-plus. Your interpretation is, you and I have talked over the months, that's virtually every pump-action shotgun, isn't it?
4: Well and every semi automatic shotgun as well. Anything that has a magazine built into the shotgun that has that's a tubular magazine is gonna have the capacity to hold more than ten rounds. So those will all be contraband. So they'll, be, they'll,
0: be, le- they'll be legal well, to it, own in your home, but you cannot take them out of your home unless they're all locked up in a box, that kind of thing?
4: Well, no, not locked up, completely disassembled. So if you were to say, you know, you take a pistol or a rifle and take the magazine out, that requires the press of a button. But for a shotgun that the kids use at our gun club for competition, the entire shotgun would have to be disassembled until they got to the range and then reassembled. That's not something you do without tools. So it was a complete mess. But... Um, Obviously, you can imagine we're pretty excited because now we can tell some gun stores that you just guys might be able to give your your employees a Christmas. So we are really hopeful, and obviously this is changing by the second because as of this morning, Karen Emmergood basically said Oregonians have no rights, and now a judge in Harney County has changed that and said the opposite is true. So 10 minutes from now we might get more news, but you heard it here first.
0: Thank you very much, Kevin. That is fantastic news. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show on the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's up. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers?
1: Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you're in an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all the capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at equity Advantage.
2: Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com. View the videos and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.
0: Pleasure to be with you. And if I sound happy right now, I don't know if John D. DiLorenzo has heard this yet. I, I I wanted to get John on to talk about the roughly 100,000 tents and tarps that have been handed out to the homeless and the drug addicted and the ne'er-do-wells and the campers on the street. And John has been uh, you know out there advocating for the cause of disabled people who can't even walk down the street because of all this. But John, did you hear the news on Measure One Fourteen from all of ha- from Harney County on the other side yeah. of the state of Oregon?
6: Oh yeah, I, I did. I find it amazing that the Attorney General, who was hell bent on uh, defending the measure, now wants to postpone the measure.
0: Well, she she wants to postpone. She was willing to postpone a piece of it for thirty days. Yeah. Which, and but what's yeah. happened is Karen Immergut, the federal judge, said, "Okay, I'll postpone just the permit piece of it." But now Kevin Sterrett tells me a Harney County state judge has put a TRO on the whole mess. For ten oh, days. I didn't
1: hear about
0: no! Oh no! The, the Kevin was just on. They literally. Why? I had already scheduled him to be on at twelve twenty-five, and he said, uh, "Yeah, the judge. They just notified us. A Harney County judge has issued a TRO for ten days with a show cause for Ellen Rosenblum to show up. The AG to show up in court in Harney County on the thirteenth of December and show cause why the whole thing shouldn't be put on hold indefinitely. Which, which I think is fantastic news.
6: Well, there you go. So, I had let, some interesting news, too.
0: Yeah. Well, I want tell me the interesting news.
6: Well, remember about a month or so ago, we had been alerted to the fact that uh, Multnomah County had potentially supplied up to 5,700 tents and many tarps, um, which ended up on the sidewalk. And so we issued our subpoenas to find out exactly how many we were talking about. And uh, I'll be damned, the... Uh, Amount is four times larger than what we expected, Uh, 23,000 tents, brand new ones, 70,000 brand new tarps, costing the taxpayers $2 million uh, to place them in the hands of a variety of aid associations, nonprofits, and whomever went into the distribution center to check them out with no controls whatsoever imposed on how they would be distributed, whether they would end up on the sidewalk or not, and frankly, whether they'd be distributed
0: at all. And, in fact, whether or not somebody could walk in, pick up a tent, and take it right down to the pawn shop and and get some money.
6: Or they could have sold them on eBay. Who knows?
0: Yeah, okay, eBay, probably a lot easier. And you did some interesting math. You said if you take the official numbers for the Portland metro area of 5,228 homeless people, they allocated how many tents per person? Well, okay,
6: it would be about one tent for every person plus four person tents for every person plus winter tents for every person.
0: Does this should should taxpayers conclude that this is just a gigantic giveaway of their money?
6: Well, it that's not I mean, look. There's all kinds of gigantic giveaways of money and incompetence throughout throughout much of government. But the problem here is that Multnomah County, in pursuing the ideological policies of uh, its county chair, have basically exacerbated the problem of the homeless on the streets. Have exacerbated the problem of people with disabilities. Who cannot navigate anywhere and have caused the city to in turn spend money to sweep up everything that multnomah county has placed on the streets i mean it's just amazing the lack of cooperation and stubbornness from uh multnomah county
0: well and in um, fact this is the now you don't see the city necessarily a favorable light this is two governments that are working at cross purposes. Is that fair to say, or is there a good guy Absolutely. and a bad guy, a white hat and a black hat?
6: It, it it is truly akin to trying to walk up the down escalator. I mean, these two county, these two governments are pursuing diametrically opposed policies that just end up in a colossal waste of taxpayer dollars.
0: Now, John, you also made we're the still point trying to, to find
6: out we're still trying to find out how much it has cost the city to clean up what Multnomah County has put in place. And that's going to be a number we'll have in a couple
0: of weeks. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, John. John, let me ask you, this, because one thing we should make clear, while it's 70,000 tarps, 23,000 tents for a population of just over 5000 cost of one point five, eight, six million for tents, uh, four hundred and sixteen thousand dollars worth of tarps. But you even made the point that because the county employees use credit cards, taxpayer-paid credit cards, are funded at some level by an NGO that's funded by the government, you don't even know if, if the $2 million is a total number, do you? Well, not only that, we don't know if the $2 million is a total number, and there were evidently
6: other county offices acquiring tents and distributing tents that are not part of these numbers. Uh, for instance, there is an Office of Emergency Services. And they acquired tents, and they distributed tents, and no one has yet got a handle on what that distribution program was like. There was also the County Emergency Operations Center, none of which is included in this. The uh, There were a, a whole host of other county departments that are not part of the Joint Office that were also kind of in the act. So no one quite... Knows. I have a feeling that this number is the tip of the iceberg. Well,
0: it sounds like it. And I guess, John, if they're trying to get people to go into permanent shelter and there are shelter beds that are available, how do you talk them into doing that when you're hand, handing out 23,000 tents and 70,000 tarps and all the rest of this stuff and you can just go down and get a tent and when you get tired of that one or it gets dirty, you get another one? How do you talk people in that situation to saying, hey, come into our permanent shelter where we can straighten you out, maybe? When, when you're encouraging them to stay camped out on the street?
6: Well, you, that's a great question. I, I think it's very difficult to talk anybody into doing that, just as it is difficult in talking a drug addict into receiving um, treatment when the alternative is just consuming as many drugs as they want without okay. any consequence.
0: Yeah, because when there used to be a consequence, and they faced—I've talked to judges who said, if I had a druggie in front of me, and I said you can either get a felony conviction or you can go into treatment, they said ninety, ninety-five percent of them said yes to treatment. But when they took that incentive away because the current law doesn't allow it, uh, then then what do you say? Would you please go into treatment? And and they basically tell the cop uh, who's directing them to treatment because all they got was a ticket for possession. Uh, they just say pound sand. I'm going to keep taking my meth as long as I want to.
6: Well, absolutely. And, and and when the consequence is the status quo, there's no way to encourage behavior. And that's where we are right now uh, with much of the homeless population. We're just saying, well, you can have a tent. You can keep doing what you've been doing.
0: It almost sounds like the theft or resale of these... Was there any, real quick at the end, was there any system at all for saying, okay, John DiLorenzo, here's a 10. When John walks back in in a week, hey, you're already on the list. You've already had a 10. Why are you asking for another one? Was there any system like that?
6: No, none at all. Um, In fact, uh, if you take a look at some of the checkout sheets that we've sent you, um, there'll be first names or made-up names, and nobody really knows who these people are who are checking out the tents or who the organizations were. Um, I am told by the county that there were over 100 nonprofits, mutual aid associations, and other informal groups that were checking out tents and supplies.
0: Doesn't make any sense. That's John DiLorenzo. He's got a lawsuit going on behalf of people with disabilities who'd like to just walk down the sidewalk and they can't because of 23,000 tents and 70,000 tarps back in a moment
5: my lord you are as dumb as a bag of hammers aren't you i would dance and be merry life would be a ding a dairy if i only had a brain In a world of over 7 billion people, you can bet that at least one or two of us will do something stupid. Are you saying that I put an abnormal brain into a seven and a half foot long
2: gorilla?
5: If I only had a brain... This, I don't mean any disrespect, but it must suck to be that dumb, is News of the Dumb, you big dummy, on the Lars Larson Show.
0: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I actually, I mean, in a way, I got a kick out of this. I understand this guy could be very, very dangerous, but it is not often when a criminal who is a convicted felon is so abundantly stupid. And I, I don't think you'd disagree with my assessment of that. And before you say, Lars, that's mean to call somebody stupid. Consider this. You're a convicted felon. You have a pile of guns. You've got illegal body armor. You've got narcotics. You've got an illegal silencer or suppressor. And what do you do? You decide, it appears, to engage in some insurance fraud and file a claim for things that you claim were stolen from you. Now you're a, you're a convicted felon. Felons can also report that they've been the victim of a crime. But imagine saying, "I know what I'll do. I'll report a whole pile of stuff stolen, uh, and I'll file an insurance claim." And but to do that, most of us who've ever filed an insurance claim, the insurance company will say, "But you have to file a police report." You know that's because the insurance company wants to know, "Did you really lose this stuff to a burglary, or are you lying to us?" So. This guy, Matthew Kane Garner of Eugene, age 48, who is a convicted felon, he files a report of a burglary at his home. And he files it with the police. And he provides a detailed list of all the things that were stolen, as well as video of the purported suspected burglar. You got all that straight. So you got a convicted felon. And he provides a list of things to the police. These are the things that some dirty dog burglar took from my home. Now, they say, they say, during the early stages of the investigation, the Eugene police determined by reading the report, and they knew this guy was a convicted felon, quote, some of the items he was reporting stolen were items that he was prohibited from owning as a felon, like body armor. So... The detectives compared notes and they said, I'll tell you what, let's call Mr. Garner and let's ask him to come meet us so we can go over the list of his stolen property. Now, Garner, you know, he's got the insurance company coming. So on November the 30th, he agrees to meet with the cops at a safe location so they can hear more about the burglary that happened at his home. Uh, Garner arrived promptly and was taken into custody by the police without incident, Then the police said, let's go get a warrant and search his home. So they searched his home. And EPD, Eugene Police, located 23 items from the reported burglary that were inside the house. So in other words, Mr. Garner reported a bunch of stuff stolen that wasn't actually stolen. It was still in his house. Now, I guess he could have misplaced those 23 things and just thought they'd been burgled. But no, I think I know what's going on here. The Eugene police point out, coincidentally, the insurance adjuster was scheduled to meet at Garner's residence with Garner the following day with regards to the insurance claim he filed. What did they get from this convicted felon? who had reported a bunch of stuff stolen they seized six firearms one of which was stolen in 2021 from a moscow idaho burglary two heavy body armor tactical vests two tactical helmets one soft piece body armor a sound suppressor people call them silencers but they're actually suppressors and get this for this convicted felon in eugene several thousand rounds of ammunition What else did they find? Uh, They'd effectively been invited to search this guy's house because he's the one who reported the burglary. He's the one who said, here's the list of all the things, apparently not realizing that many of the things that he reported stolen from him, a felon, were in fact illegal for a felon to possess. They also found narcotics, including fentanyl, oxy-30 pills, suspected methamphetamines, and suspected heroin. He is now sitting in the Lane County Jail on six counts of felon in possession of a firearm, three counts of felon in possession of body armor, unlawful possession of a silencer or suppressor. Uh, Pending charges are initiating a false police report, which is also a crime, and conspiracy to commit theft one by deception. In other words, you call your insurance company and you say, somebody stole a whole bunch of stuff from me. And you still have the stuff in your house, and but you think nobody's ever going to find it because who's ever going to search your house? I mean, if you're a convicted felon and you tell the police, oh, I got a bunch of stuff stolen and it's not legal for me to possess it. But I expect you to just meet with me and pursue the burglary so that I can maintain that all this stuff was stolen. So when the insurance guy comes, you can say, yeah, here's the police report. I filed it with the police. I'm guessing that Mr. Garner, who has a right to his day in court, he can suggest some explanation for what happened with all of this. Uh, he's going to have to make a different appointment with his insurance company about filing that report of stolen property. In any case, it's a Tuesday. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm glad to take your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. You can answer our Twitter poll question. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. Should Northwest retailers add armed security staff to their stores? I'd say yes, it's about time to do that. And, of course, you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? The answer? They're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits—at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage order your kits right now by going to mypatriotsupply.com your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes listen this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world go to mypatriotsupply.com that's mypatriotsupply.com Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. And this is a big day. TRO issued to uphold or not uphold, to hold uh, away from coming into law. Measure 114 that was scheduled to go into law on Thursday. We'll get you updates on that as we can. But a TRO has been issued by a judge, a temporary restraining order. That is not going to happen. And we've got a lot of things to talk about. Uh, but there was something that I started with today. And that was to give the Daily Grill to Governor Kate Brown. Uh, For one thing in particular, she deserves it for so many reasons. But a guy by the name of Richard Gilmore, who is a serial rapist, who has spent a long time in prison, and he ought to be in prison for the rest of his life. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers?
1: Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plats. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup.
0: So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds?
1: Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio.
2: Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. He's going to walk out very soon
0: as what's called, he should have walked out as a level three high-risk sex offender, but instead, because Lame duck governor Kate Brown would not step in and make some changes. He's going to walk out as a low-level sex offender. And of all the people this is important to because it's important to me, uh but it's especially important to a young lady by the name of Danielle Tudor who you've heard on this program before. Miss Tudor, welcome back to the program and thanks for taking the time on on this day. It's it's not a not a happy day for you, is it?
7: No, it's really not. But uh, thank you for having me on, Lars. It's always, always a privilege to be able to be on your program.
0: Well, it's my privilege to be able to have you tell my audience, uh, as much as you'd like to, uh, because you've done it before, um, describe what Richard Gilmore did to you.
7: Um, when I was uh, 17 and a senior in high school, he uh, actually broke into my childhood home, and he had originally, when I saw him, and he didn't have anything over his face, he originally turned around, and I thought he was leaving our house through the garage. So I ran up two flights of stairs to my parents' bedroom in the darkness, and at that at that time, we didn't have 911 911. So I called the operator and then they connected me to law enforcement. And as I sat there in the darkness of my parents' bedroom, talking to them, I still very vividly remember asking them, when are you going to get here? When are you going to get here? I was terrified. And they kept trying to calm me down, telling me, it's okay, he saw you. He was there to burglarize. He's not coming back. And as they calmed me down... Um, our dog started to growl. And so I told them, I said, the dog is growling. He's come back into the house. And they tried to calm me down. And as I peeked around the corner of my parents' bedroom, I saw him coming up the staircase with a large stick that he had gotten from our garage, and he had put something over his face. So as he saw me and heard my voice, he actually bolted up the rest of the staircase into my parents' bedroom, swinging that wildly, and he grabbed the phone from my hand, and the last thing that law enforcement heard was a blood-curdling scream as he yanked that phone out of the wall. And he basically pushed me up onto the wall in my parents' bedroom and just started hitting me and beating me. And as I screamed, he he told me to shut up or he is going to kill me. And he literally lifted me off the wall in my parents' bedroom and threw me on their bed. And it actually wasn't until he actually started to grope at my body that I even realized why he had come back. And so another struggle ensued as I tried to get, uh, get away from him. And we ended up, excuse me, on the floor of my parents' bedroom. And it was there that he raped me. And he had left and I ran to my bedroom and grabbed my robe and headed out the front door. And it was as I headed out the front door that I actually ran into law enforcement, and they had just arrived at our house. And unfortunately, it was too late. But I have later learned I was victim number three in our neighborhood, and there would go on to be eight victims in my neighborhood uh, before he actually moved out of our area.
0: How long should he be in prison?
7: Well, if we went by his original sentence, he would be there at least 60 years. (laughs) But unfortunately, after trial, uh, Gilmore was not caught and apprehended until 1986 after the rape of 13-year-old Tiffany Edens. So at trial, uh, he could not be prosecuted for our rapes because the statute of limitations was only three years at the time but we all were subpoenaed, had to take uh, part in the trial process and testify. And when the judge handed down his sentence, he came to the conclusion that Richard Gilmore was a dangerous offender and that he needed to spend as long as possible in prison for the safety of women in the community. So he gave him a maximum of 60 years. And what none of us knew was eight months later, The Oregon Board of Parole went in and turned that sentence and reduced it into half. And they did it in secret, and no one knew. So then they went on to have four parole hearings without telling anyone in secret. And even Gilmore himself has said, I wondered where everybody was. wonder why none of them were coming to a parole hearing. That's because we didn't know. And so then, of course, you know of the lawsuit with the Edens family, and then the 2008 hearing, and then that's when I came forward as a named victim of Richard Gilmore. So, yeah, he should have been in there for at least 60 years. And unfortunately, uh, we've acquired at least 36 because he had a couple other charges for sex abuse that were in there that apparently the parole board let that so with good time and the maximum of 30 plus the extra sex abuse charges we've ended up at 36 years
0: and not only that but he'll walk out classified as a low-level sex offender
7: you know <laughs> i i have so many emotions right now i'm mad i'm angry um i feel unprotected i feel betrayed i mean there are. So many emotions right now going through my mind. I did not realize, Lars, that as I petitioned Governor Brown to do something about his sex offender leveling and declare an emergency and get the parole board in gear to adopt some rules that would take care of this, I didn't know. I was fighting for my own rights to know information about him and where he's living. But I have been reduced by, uh, of all people, Multnomah County Department of Community Justice. My experience and that of seven other women in my neighborhood, we have been reduced to having had a unique experience with Richard Gilmore. And I tell you what, it just, uh, <laughs> I'm just, I, I'm angry. I am now a victim that has no right to know where my rapist is going to be living what's happening with his parole if he goes missing we know in his profile that he has been profiled to seek revenge we know he has threatened at least two victims with revenge and now i am left with myself and my family that i've put at risk because of my advocacy i could walk into the neighborhood where he lives and not know it and have
0: Danielle, hold that thought for just a second. I'm going to hold Danielle Tudor over. Danielle, I'm sorry we hit the break, but we'll we'll be back in a moment. I'm talking to Danielle Tudor, who was raped by Mr. Gilmore, who's now going to walk out of prison thanks to bad policies. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to take your calls and I want to apologize to Danielle Tudor because Danielle, I've got some heartbreaks within the show. And I apologize for interrupting because I, 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 I there are times I, I do actually know how to keep my mouth shut. And, and because you were telling uh, a very compelling story about having been yeah. raped by this man who's going to walk out of prison far too soon, far short of the 60 years given to him for the, the rape he was convicted of, uh, and not for the other rapes that we know he did. But like Barbara wrote in, said all women are in danger from this dangerous rapist. This is insane. Only a matter of time before he hurts one of us. You were just describing that you literally will be kept in the dark because you're not officially considered to be a victim of Mr. Gilmore. Uh, You could literally be in his neighborhood and have no idea that he's there.
7: Exactly, me or any member of my family. So, you know, I think it's worth it to note in this case that the Oregon Board of Parole has, from the very beginning, thrown caution to the wind and they've seized every opportunity to disregard and and minimize the victims of Richard Gilmore, you know, who never received justice. So that's someone like me. And right now, I really feel like a second class rape victim. Who has no rights? And it just—it it is beyond my comprehension. You know, we're putting him as a low risk offender with high risk supervision. And how does that even make sense? I—I I, I don't get it. But I'm sorry, I have lost my faith in the criminal justice process. That—that's that's now shattered. I have no confidence in the Oregon criminal justice system. And for them to say, you know, well, we're going to treat him like he's high risk. Well, it may start out that way, but at any point in time, after he reaches 30 days of being out on parole, all of the assurances that they're trying to give us, those can all be done away with. Let's start with the ankle monitor. Did you know that that's only going to be monitored during business hours? Do they
0: what?
3: not realize
0: Hold on, Danielle, hold on. So they say we're going to assume that crimes, uh, more crimes, repeat crimes by by a convicted criminal are only going to happen nine to five Monday through Friday.
7: You got it. That is exactly what we have been told. And you're talking a serial rapist that we are releasing into his perfect storm. Everything he has ever said that led him to become a serial rapist, we are releasing him into that particular environment
0: so well (laughs) educate educate my audience and me a bit what what has Gilmore himself said is the thing I mean in a lot of cases I just say Daniel when somebody says well you don't understand why he did it I said you know in some cases I I don't know or care why you know Ted Bundy did it or why you know why any of the famous killers did it but what has Gilmore said about what he he claims drove him to rape all these women
7: When life was not going right, and that included, he didn't have the job that he felt he should have, the recognition and the money that he should have that should go along with that. When his relationships were not what they should be, getting the respect he thought he should get. When those were going downhill and his marriage was starting to fall apart, then that's what sent him after Tiffany Eden's in our area when life wasn't going right, he was burglarizing and committing all these other crimes. Well, then he figured, well, I hate my mom. So somebody's gotta pay for that. So he even said the first rape that he committed that we know of, that when she appeared, the first thing that came to his mind was, I hate my mom, I need to rape her. And you're just like, how do you, how does that connection even happen? But as he began to rape and attack more women and beat them, it just it it became ingrained in him that that was an action that was very satisfying to him. So, you know, we put him in prison and separated him for 36 years. And yes, he does look a little bit older than when he went in there. But the Richard Gilmore that's on the inside, the one that has mental disorders, that person is still the same person. We haven't changed that. And by the way, his last psych evaluation that he didn't pass was seven years ago. If the parole board is willing to release him as a level one sex offender upon the community, the best thing they could do is do a psychological evaluation and show that this man is cured. But they can't. And they know he's not cured. And yet we're going to release him as a level one on our communities. And someone that jogged our neighborhoods in the in the wintertime when it started to get dark early, we're going to release him into that. Oh, and guess what? His ankle monitor will not be working during that time. We're
0: sorry. Uh, Daniel. tell me this. Did you ever get any kind of meaningful response from Governor Brown?
7: Oh no, she never responded to me. Are you kidding? And now I know it all makes sense. Now, now I know that victim advocates several years ago, when, when the parole board announced it was only going to use the static 99 to classify our sex offenders, they went to the parole board and said, you can't do that. This is not a proven form. It's not a one size fits all. And the parole board just flat out told them, no. And advocates tried to tell them, you're going to come across cases like this one where you're going to need more information. And they flat out said no. So the fact that Governor Kate Brown has turned her back, and I, I feel like the whole system is turning its back on me after I did my job. Now, I feel abandoned and left to fend for myself. My family is here is left to fend for themselves. Against Richard Gilmore and what he might do, and and quite honestly, if I could sue the state of Oregon to get their button gear to do something about the sex offender registry and all our unclassified sex offenders that they've just put off for the last decade and are going to put off for almost another decade, I'd do it in a heartbeat.
0: And yet, we're sitting here in an environment where just a few years ago, the big cause, social cause, was hashtag Me Too. Women should be believed when women are, are mistreated or men are mistreated, mostly women, though, Harvey Weinstein and, and company, that you have to take them seriously. You have to act on it. And that was a big, big cause for everybody. And, you know, it, it is a legitimate cause to say if somebody is hurt, uh, in, in our society, especially when they are assaulted that in any way that involves sex, which is so very personal, uh, and a violent assault like that, you've got to do something about it. And folks like Kate Brown and, and I'm sure Tina Kotek too, were completely on board for that until it actually comes to the practical matter. I'm, I'm heading up well, to another I, one of those hard breaks. But, Danielle, I'll give you the last 30 seconds.
7: Okay. Well, uh, I think I can sum it up in 30 seconds. Right now, with everything that we have done, right now it feels like the parole board and Governor Kate Brown and Tina Kotec are just giving me the middle finger and saying, hey, you're on your own.
0: Very well said. Very well said. Danielle, thank you very much. God bless and be well. And and we'll do everything we can to advocate for this. this is an absolute outrage because she's been abandoned. And frankly, the rest of society, to a much lesser extent, has been abandoned. Cops defunded, prosecutors who won't prosecute, governors who let criminals out of jail, And you're listening to the Lars Larson Show on the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Are transgender Americans really short of advocacy? Is it really the case that they are so beset by society that we've got to help them out in some way I thought we'd talk about that with Pedro Gonzalez, and then we'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And as always, naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll at show on Twitter and LarsLarson.com on the web. Pedro, welcome back to the program. How are you?
8: So good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: Pedro Gonzalez is a senior fellow, by the way, at the American Principles Project Foundation, Um, you know, you took a look at some of the numbers that have been developed by and we'll give full credit to open secrets, uh, the data that they've put together on the participation of pro transgender groups uh during recent elections. What'd you find?
8: A lot. I mean, the the long and short of it is that Democrats in particular are reaping the lion's share of millions and millions of dollars that are given by groups that support transgenderism as an ideology, but also there is a lot of interest that goes behind this. And what I mean by interest is just cold, hard cash. But, as I note in my report, it's not just Democrats, obviously. There are not a few Republicans that are also taking money from people who stand to benefit from the normalization and proliferation of transgenderism, but Democrats are the ones that are reaping the, um, the the bulk of the money that's involved in this stuff. Um, but I think it also raises questions about Republicans too, although they they don't really benefit from uh, buying into this stuff uh, so So the ones who do support transgenderism and its normalization actually seem to believe in this stuff more than Democrats do uh if, if you think of it that way. Um, but
0: I well, mean, well, well let, let me try ahead, something sorry. on you, Pedro, because you know this subject. I mean, the reason we have you on is that American principles, you know this subject better than I do, and I want to share that with my audience. Is it possible that some of those Republicans, I'm not trying to make an excuse for them, but is it possible that what they're trying to do is inoculate or vaccinate or insure themselves against being accused of being otherwise? In other words, saying, I don't really believe in this stuff, but if I don't uh, you know, if I don't wave the flag a little bit on that on that issue, Uh, then they're going to come after me, and that they're using it as a way to try to protect themselves. Could that be the reason they're going that? I'm not saying that's a good motivation, you know, frankly. I think it's more virtue signaling, but is that possibly the reason the Republicans are doing it?
8: That's certainly part of it. I think there's a – but I think that's true for a lot of issues like immigration, right? That basically, basically unless you signal that you kind of support – Uh, the the basics of, you know, a particular issue as the left conceives of it uh, and and deems it appropriate appropriate for for public discussion, then you're going to be, you know, condemned as a bigot, whether you're a xenophobe or a homophobe or whatever, a transphobe, or, you know, uh, an endless number of other phobes that you can be labeled as. Um, That's certainly part of it, but I think that really what I wrote this report the, the the intention behind this report was to show people that this is an issue where there really can't be any hesitation to, to, to take a side. And obviously, I think that I'm on the right side of this issue, because when you look at it, so um, all of the data that supports, you know, for, for what the data is worth, basically all the evidence that supports um, what we're doing to kids, often these things are irreversible, the, the medical interventions. Um, it doesn't stand on anything uh, that, that even resembles facts, and that's why you see England, Finland, and Sweden that are all either sharply curtailing transgenderism as it pertains to children, or you know, completely halting it altogether. Whereas in the United States, it seems like we are barreling down the road at a hundred miles per hour, and I mean, this is really alarming, right? And so, the, one of the yeah. questions that I'm getting at is why is why are we not slowing down? And obviously, I argue that. Uh, well, there's a lot of people stand to benefit from
0: this stuff. So, well, and and a lot of people who feel I'm not going to stand in the way of that train because the train's going to run over me. And and I agree with you. I think the dangers to kids, both in school, but more to the point, as you made, uh, in in health, so-called health care, where somebody actually put up a map. I, you've probably seen it, uh, Pedro. But the number of what they call pediatric gender clinics uh, in in 2000, what was it, 2005? Uh, It was a 15 year period, 2007 to 2022, went from two in North America to basically every single state in the country has clinics that, by the way, just like you said, there's a lot of money to be made by cutting the breasts of teenage girls and, and castrating teenage boys. And I say it in those blunt terms because I want people to understand how serious this is, how irreversible it is with children.
8: Yeah, no, and that's exactly right. And I, I actually talked about that data point in my report, where in 2007, you had the first um, the first clinic of its kind that was attached to a hospital and was dedicated specifically to you know, so-called care for trans youth was established in Boston at Boston Children's Hospital. So that was in 2007. Two years later, uh, two years later the Endocrine Society endorsed the use of uh, puberty suppression in in gender dysphoric youth as part of the whole transition sequence, um, but between 2007 and today, it's that 15 year period or so, uh, the number of of clinics that are just like the Boston Clinic, which is a comprehensive, um, it's a comprehensive facility where they do diagnosis and the full spectrum of treatment, it went from one to 60 in that 15 year period, but. That doesn't account for all of the other kinds of clinics that may not be comprehensive, but still offer um, treatment uh, for for trans youth, right? And that number is actually much bigger. It's estimated at it being uh, around more than three hundred. So basically, from one to about to, to three hundred of clinics that offer treatments that are related to trans youth in a span of about fifteen years. And so again. In my report, I argue that you should believe the people that are you know, ideologues when they tell you to your face that they're true believers in transgenderism. You should believe them because they're real. Um, but obviously, there's a lot of material interest behind this. And so to give you an example, a video surfaced recently. The video itself is from actually 2018, um, and it's, it's from a conference in Nashville where a, a, oh, yeah. a woman who's a professor is talking about how she convinced Nashville to get Progressive on the issue of trans youth, and 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 ultimately open one of these clinics in Nashville, right? And and she said very bluntly, uh, I told you know people that were skeptical that surgeries like female to male chest reconstructive surgery, which is you know a very euphemistic way of saying uh, mutilating uh, young girls, um, she said, well that that runs anywhere between thirty to forty thousand dollars per clinic. Yep. And she said, it's just routine, kind of like it's a bargain, just routine hormone treatment is thousands of dollars, and you've got repeat customers. And she said that that's really all it took to kind of nudge people who were on the fence about transgenderism into realizing, oh, this is actually quite profitable for the clinic.
0: You, you've got to take a look at this report by Pedro Gonzalez from American Principles. Uh, Washington Examiner has a piece on it. We're glad to put this interview up. $6.9 million from pro-transgender groups to Democrat candidates, $1.8 million directly to Joe Biden, hundreds of millions given to LGBTQ causes allegedly in support of all this and it's driving education policy and it's also driving so-called supportive or what is it gender reaffirming support care in health care pedro thank you very much i appreciate the time thank you so much that is pedro gonzalez a senior fellow with the american principles project now i'll take a naysayer on that but if you can if anybody can tell me that they want to be a naysayer and say it's okay to mutilate teenage boys and girls to do what they call top and bottom surgery. That's the euphemism for castration and mastectomies on teenage girls that are perfectly healthy. I'd be glad to take the naysayer call. 866-HEY-LARS, you got the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to tell you about something that's going on on Capitol Hill right now in the lame duck session uh, of Congress, and then I want to tie that into some new information we've got about people who apparently died, not of COVID, but they died of the vaccine. But let me get to that in just a moment. First, welcome to the program. I'm glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS, and I'll get to those very soon. You can also uh, call in as a naysayer, 866-439-5277. And naysayers always go to the front of the line. You can also email talk at com, or you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that two places, at show and at LarsLarson.com. Now, here's what the Congress has done. The Congress has apparently agreed, and it sounds like it'll end up in the Pentagon's budget, that they have to drop the vaccine mandate. Now, a lot of us think that's sensible. About a third of Americans have chosen not to be vaccinated for COVID-19. And many of us did that because we thought there's greater risk in the vaccine than there is in simply getting COVID and getting over it by the way, been there, done that, seen the movie, and, uh, and I'm just fine. Um, and you say, but it has killed some people. Yes, it has. Um, but here's what is bizarre. The Pentagon is responding to the Congress saying, by the way, if you write that budget for us and you say we have to drop our vaccine mandate, and I want to tell you that the Pentagon has been so crazy about the vaccine mandate, there are literally young men and women at the service academies, West Point, Annapolis, the Air Air Force Academy, who've all been told you've done the four years of education to be an officer in in the military, uh, graduating from one of the service academies. You will not be allowed to graduate because you have not taken the vaccine. That is how serious they have taken it. Now, you've watched a number of court cases over the last two years. The Pentagon has told the Congress, if you drop the vaccine mandate, we will be forced to segregate our service members Into two groups. You know, this group is vaccinated, that group is not, and that somehow they're gonna have to divide up their activities on ships and things like that. This is how crazy things have become. But let me throw a little extra information into this, and I just want you to consider it for what it's worth. A new report with me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges, but how do you explain it to customers?
1: Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own in an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all the capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at equity advantage.
2: Would you like to learn more about 1031 Exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 Exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Published
0: ...in the Clinical Research and Cardiology Journal, the official journal of the Cardiac Society in Germany country, very similar to ours, detailed autopsies that were carried out at Heidelberg University Hospital in 2021. Now, what were they checking? They were checking people who had died unexpectedly at home with no pre-existing disease shortly after COVID vaccination. And you say, okay, that's an interesting group of people because it gives you a chance to test, is the vaccine itself dangerous? And you say, well, how would you tell that? Uh, Well, you'd look at the myocarditis reports, you'd look at the VAERS reports. VAERS is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. It is not comprehensive, but it tries to track the adverse effects of vaccinations, of all vaccinations. Do you know that the adverse events reported related to the COVID vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, there are more of those than there are for every other kind of vaccine that America has ever had. VAERS tracks only vaccines that are approved in the United States. It does not track vaccines that have been approved somewhere else. So it's primarily a U.S.-based resource. What they find out in Germany, what they did was they went out and looked at 20 people who got the vaccine and then within a couple of weeks died with no pre-existing diseases, and they died shortly after vaccination. About half of those were deemed to have died due to some other uh, disease that they had. But of the other half, they said five of the deaths that occurred within one week of the first or second dose of vaccination with Pfizer or Moderna, inflammation of the heart tissue due to an autoimmune response triggered by the vaccine had likely or possibly caused the death. Cases of myocarditis, which, by the way, the CDC seemed to know that myocarditis was a problem, but the CDC, as usual over the last couple of years, was not entirely honest about it. They downplayed all of those effects at the time that they were pushing the the vaccine the most in the early part of last year and all the way through the period where we got up to about two-thirds or 70% of Americans being vaccinated. Now, here's from the actual research, from clinical research in cardiology. They said, we described the autopsy findings and common characteristics of myocarditis in untreated persons who received the anti-SARS-CoV-2 vaccination. Standard autopsies performed on 25 people who had died unexpectedly and within 20 days after the vaccination. In four patients who received an mRNA vaccination, we identified acute myocarditis without detection of another significant disease or health constellation that might have caused an unexpected death. In other words. Some of it's in medical terminology, but they showed that the myocardial uh, lymphocytic infiltration predominantly, and it gives a lot of other things that, that go way beyond my, uh, my pay grade. Overall autopsy findings indicated death due to acute myoarrhythmic cardiac failure. Now, the only question I've been considering for the last you know two years, we knew that there was a vaccine on the way. We did not know that it was going to be a, an experimental vaccine. We did not know at the time that the medical authorities in this country who could only give emergency use authorization to the vaccines if there was no other acceptable available alternative. So what they do, they dished on ivermectin, they dished on hydroxychloroquine, they dished on every other possible way of treating it. And what was the incentive? Hundreds of billions of dollars to be made by having a vaccine that doesn't prevent the disease and occasionally kills you. You've got the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network.
2: Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com.
0: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. And of course, I have to repeat to you, the biggest news of the day for the Pacific Northwest is that the gun ban brought about by Measure 114 that was due to take effect The day after tomorrow, a judge in Harney County on the east side of the state of Oregon has issued a temporary restraining order uh, for 10 days. But better than that, this judge has done what's called a uh, TRO and a show cause, meaning the judge is saying to the state of Oregon, show up in my courtroom on the 13th of December, and if you can't convince me to do otherwise i'm going to extend that tro for some additional period of time we don't know what that'll be it'd be interesting to see what the state's argument is yes we'd like you to keep this unconstitutional ban in place uh instead of simply allowing it to be withheld stopped by your tro good luck with that in any case i'll be glad to get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment but i've asked mark harmsworth on who's director of the small business center the washington policy center Mark, welcome back. And uh, Washington businesses, like a lot of businesses around America, are trying to recover after the pandemic with the economic uh, dislocations that have happened, rising wages, rising energy and all the rest of that. But it sounds like rather than being a help to business, uh, government is actually the biggest impediment to business being able to get healthy again. Is that is that a good is that a right conclusion?
9: Yes, yes, it is, Lars, and thanks for having me on today. Uh, Ironically, the government that created all of the overburdensome mandated regulations during COVID and prior to that as well has now created a new program that businesses have to pay for to help businesses deal with the regulations that the government created in the first place, which is just, it's just Mm -hmm. (laughs) the way that's being put together. It's, yeah, the fact that they're spending money to help businesses deal with the government just shows you how bad things can be in Washington state. And they're spending $3.1 million on this under the guise of equity for all. What they really should be doing is taking this money and putting it into uh, actually reducing the regulations in the first place, the the sales tax burdens, the B&O burdens, the licensing burdens the state puts on us, and all of the different things that we have to do just to comply with uh, a bureaucrat's good idea one day uh, under the rules that have been uh, given to them by the
8: legislature.
0: I mean, wouldn't you think that this Lisa Brown, who you quote, who says look a small business has all these problems so brown who's director of the uh, D- department of commerce uh, says we'll help you navigate all these roadblocks that have been put up by another part of government wouldn't as you suggested wouldn't it be better to say why don't we see if we can knock down some of those barriers instead of having to negotiate you around them
9: yeah, absolutely, and that that's really the direction we should be going. That's much more. If if the goal again is equity, which is what is being claimed here, that there are businesses that are being discriminated against because of their their uh, location in the state or the type of business they're in, then take the money that you were going to spend, remove the regulations in the first place, even the playing field, because a lot of small businesses when they're starting up, you already start, you have to try and figure out all these different regulations that are putting in you like the new hiring law regulation this year that requires employers to put salary ranges on jobs, Uh, other laws, and and then allow the applicant to sue if you don't give it to them because they were out of the range. And then there's other things around the licensing where they're starting to move towards hours being tracked within cities. So uh, if you're operating within an admissible limit, you have to start paying license fees based on the amount of hours that you're working. Well, whatever happens, just a flat fee or maybe even no license fee if you're under a and threshold, these things we could fix, that would make things much better for our businesses and it would be a lot cheaper for the state as well.
0: Well, and not only that, but how about customers? Because Mark, you know that I live right next to a major border. You know, I live just north of the uh, the border, the Columbia River, that's the border between Oregon and Washington. And anymore, if I want to get somebody to come and do something, whether it's, you know, dig a hole or, or you know, fix a window or whatever, the first question I ask I have to ask them is, do you do business on the other side of the river? And most of them now say no, because they've got fees and regulations and limitations and so you, and now they're talking about doing this within a state where you, you're sitting and say in the city of Seattle or city of Spokane or the tri cities and you call some company that happens to be outside the city limits and you say, can you come and, you know, fix my plumbing? And they say, well, but if we come in and spend a few hours fixing your plumbing, then we have to report those hours To this city or that city. I mean, in the case of the tri cities, you got three different cities and county boundaries and everything else, and you're supposed to track where you were when you did which work, and then pay different fees. Uh, You know, this makes the three Billy Billy goats gruff and the trolls under the bridge look like nothing. (laughs)
9: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is already in place. Uh, My business operates in um, about 60 different municipalities, and I have to be licensed in 60 locations. And then I have to track how many hours I work within that municipality. Then I have to track whether it was a sales taxable event or a non-sales taxable event. Then I have to track whether I was remote or I was actually inside the, the municipality to get, make nexus. So when you put all this together, that's a full-time employee just to report this to the state, and they check it, and they match it against your B&O and your sales taxes. And if you don't get it right, you can't even file your returns, and they'll come down on you like a ton of
0: bricks. So what's the fix of this? Can we get rid of that rule altogether or will that take new legislation passed by the the folks in Olympia?
9: Um, It's going to take some legislation. Uh, We also, I think, need to uh, remove some of the rulemaking authority from some of these agencies down in the state we could do like other states where uh, if a, an agency passes a rule in the off season from a, a legislative session, the the legislature would then have to ratify that rule before it became effect or effective, or it would be overturned if it was already in effect. So we could do something like that to simplify this. But you know, to operating Washington, how about one business license? Wouldn't that be just a great idea? Just to kind of smooth things along.
0: It would. And Mark, I could throw other ideas. I mean, one of them that's always bothered me, I'm not a contractor, but you have contractors who say there are some states that go by the I think it's the national building code, which is sort of the model code for the whole country. And then you say you can just go by that code. And I think some states do. And I can't remember whether it's Oregon or Washington, but other states say, oh, no, we're going to have our own that the model business or the model uh, building code is the base. But then we're going to add a whole bunch of regulations above that so that it becomes, you know, a unique thing to know the rules of that state and comply with them. You say, well, how does that benefit anybody you know, to have all these different rules. It'd be one thing if you had some really unique things like you're in Hawaii and you have to take volcanoes into account. But but if you're just talking about putting in plumbing, electrical and, and that sort of thing, why shouldn't there be one set of rules and say, get everybody to uh, abide by those rules. And then you can let people go around and, and do the business that helps out the customers who want to be helped out. That's Mark Harmsworth, who is director of the Small Business Center at the Washington Policy Center. I'll get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. And something else that's coming up. President Joe Biden is going to go to a border state. And if you say, well, that's great, because Joe Biden can, for the first time in his entire sad, pathetic, plagiaristic life, he can actually go to the border. But you know what? He's not going to go to the border. And you won't believe the reason he gives as to why he's not going to go to the border. I'll tell you about it coming up next on the Lars Larson Show.
9: First state and not just the
0: border Because they more important than going on. They're going to invest billions of dollars in a new enterprise. That is Joe Biden. And I know there's helicopter in the background. That's because Joe was taking off. He wasn't going off to his beach house in uh, Delaware. He was actually going to a border state. He's visiting a border state today. And you think, great, Joe Biden, for the first time in his political career of more than half a century, is actually going to go to our border with Mexico. Now, perish the thought it's not going to happen. And believe me, the president and his spokeswoman have been asked time and again, why won't President Biden go to the border? Now, they tried for a while to say, well, Joe Biden has gone to the border. No, he hasn't. Years ago, when he was on a campaign swing, it might have been during his presidential campaign. He was actually going from one city to another city uh, down in the southern part of the United States. And he was driving or being driven along a highway not far from the border. And reporters said that doesn't count as going to see what's going on at the border. The fact that you drove past it on a freeway. No, it doesn't count. So one of the reporters, I think it was Ducey, was asking Biden today, your first state on this trip is going to be a border state. Why aren't you going to the border? And Joe Biden comes back and says, because there are more important things going on in America. Welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to have you with me. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866 Hey Lars. That's 866 439 5277. Send your emails to talk at larslarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You can find that at Lars Larson Show and at larslarson.com. If you don't want to go to Twitter, go to my website. But here's what's so crazy about it this is Joe Biden. Who has been president not quite two years yet. And the current count is that more than five million illegal aliens have crossed the border into the United States illegally, more than five million in less than two years. And Joe Biden claims that going to some dog and pony show where he shakes hands and gets patted on the back and has to be directed where to go and who to shake hands with, and he gets lost half the time, that going there to see a new investment in a new enterprise is more important than taking note of what's going on on our southern border. I mean, there's death and destruction going on on the border. Almost 800 people have died trying to cross that border. And if you say, well, that's not Joe's fault. Yes. As a matter of fact, it is. I'd make this comparison. If you dig a big hole in your front or in your backyard intending to put in a swimming pool, but you kind of don't get around to it. And then the hole fills up with water and the kids in the neighborhood, because you never put up a fence, discover that, Hey, it's a pond full of water and they begin to come by and play in this pond full of water. And then one day, one of them slips in, drowns, and dies. Do you know what lawyers call that? They call that an attractive nuisance. In other words, if you've created a pond of water intending to build a swimming pool or whatever you were intending to do, and it becomes attractive to the kids in the neighborhood who don't know any better. And you don't put up a fence and try to keep them away from that hole filled with water. And then one of them dies. You are guilty of creating an attractive nuisance and you could foresee what was going to happen. Joe Biden has done that on a massive scale by telling his border patrol, don't stop those people from coming across. Welcome them. Give them a ride to the center where they can get hot food, a medical checkup, some clean clothes, and then give them give them an airplane ticket so they can fly anywhere they want in America without picture ID. Uh, give them that. That is an attractive nuisance on a massive scale. And that's exactly what Joe Biden has done. Consider this. The Border Patrol counts what they call get- gotaways, which means... Border patrol agents may be stopping a group of 40 or 50 illegal aliens and they see another group of 40 or 50 a mile away who are also coming across the border, but they never get the chance to intercept them. Those are called gotaways. Do you know how many gotaways have come into the United States since Joe Biden became president? One million gotaways in the last less than two years. And they say that number includes terrorists. It includes terrorists cartel members it includes sex trafficking of kids and adults it includes criminals It includes people <coughs> on the terrorist watch list the whole system is broken down and joe biden is heading right down to a border state but he says there are more important things to take note of than taking note of america's border problems let's go to your calls now let's go first to linda Hey, Linda, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. We always like to put naysayers first, so welcome to the program. What's on your mind, and what do you and I disagree about? Yeah,
3: I'm um, um, weighing in on the trans issue or ideology or however you want to. Um, I'm sorry if you uh, uh, conservatives are so burdened by not being perceived as transphobic, uh, but you know what? Uh Mostly what happens before uh, 18 is only puberty blockers. okay, and those can be um, reversed. Now, when you get on the air and then at the age of eight.
0: With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers?
1: Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all the capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated. But the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage.
2: Would you like to learn more about 1031 Exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 Exchange Professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.
3: At the age of 18, people can decide for themselves about, you know, having the transition physically. But when you come, do you think when you come across saying that children are having their breasts sawed off and their penises whacked off, does that sound like a transphobic? I mean, I think if it sounds like Oh, um, oh,
0: oh, Linda, I want to confirm. I want to confirm what you're saying if you are asking am i fearful that a medical establishment in america is going to let doctors even encourage doctors and pay doctors with taxpayer money to cut the penises off teenage boys and cut the breasts off teenage girls i am very fearful that that i know is happening and you say well most of the time it's not happening is most of the time enough when we're talking about children having parts of their bodies cut off by doctors, is is most of the time an okay standard? You, you, you
3: know what, little little children don't have breasts. Okay, there's no breast to whack off, and doesn't that isn't well, that? Well, fourteen rather, and fifteen year old I mean, girls end up
0: developing they're, they're, they're
3: breasts, and, having and their breasts cut off, L- off. Linda, you're not understanding. Linda sounds I'm, rather transphobic. No, no,
0: no. It's uh, it's not. I'm not fear- no, if somebody if somebody is an adult. <laughs> And they want to have mm-hmm. their private parts cut off, I don't right. care as long as they don't expect me to pay for it. But if you want to do this to children, am I fearful of that? Oh, I'm more than fearful. Have I I'm, just ang- told you that I'm angry
3: I'm angry. And you're wrong. Years old. And
0: and you're I'm wrong. Not wrong. I'm gonna tell you no, something. People are not, Linda, a value. You, you sound like all you do if is read are Democrat talking watch points. Okay. they're doing it though, Linda. You Linda, they are doing and and I'll tell you something. We've got medical professionals on tape at medical conferences talking about how surgery on children, and this is I, I define that as under the age of 18, is being done right now. And most of the medical centers that are doing it, Some of them even admit we don't have any good medical science that actually proves that this is the right thing to do or that it actually addresses the problems that are being encountered by those children, but they're doing it because they make money. They've talked about how they make money doing it, and all you're going to do is deny that it's happening. I'm telling you something, Linda. You ought to open up your eyes. If you've got eyes to see and ears to hear, you're going to understand there are medical institutions that have increased dramatically in the last decade and they're doing these things to children and you're saying it's okay as long as most of the time they're not doing it to children not okay for me you're listening to the lars larson show and the radio northwest network always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. And I always like to disclose if I have a dog in the fight on a particular issue. Did I go to college for a while? Yes. Did I finish? No. Uh, Did I take out any student loans? No. Am I asking anybody else to pay off my bad debts because I decided to get a college degree that didn't actually have a a well-paying profession attached to the other end of it? No. I'm not asking for that. But we have literally tens of millions of Americans who seem to want to have the federal government and the U.S. taxpayer, most of whom have never sat in a college classroom, pay their bad debts that they took on. Well, Joe Biden said, I'll get that done. And then he said, I'm just going to cancel half a trillion to up to one trillion dollars of student debt, and I'll do it without even going up on Capitol Hill, without getting uh, members of Congress to pass a law. And some of us who are kind of purists about the Constitution said, can Joe Biden just spend half a trillion dollars without authority from the Congress called an appropriations bill, a law? And most of us, even the non-lawyers among us, say, nah, you can't do that. You've got to have an appropriation by Congress, except Joe doesn't have one of those. So now now it looks like... uh, we're going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court on this. John Carlo Canaparo is a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and since he's a legal fellow, he knows more about the law than I do. John Carlo, welcome back. Um, what's the status at this point of Joe Biden's rather broad promise to give away half a trillion dollars of our money to pay off the bad debts of college students?
3: Well, thanks
10: for having me, Lars. Uh, right now, we've got a Supreme Court oral argument set for February. Uh, It's proceeding on an emergency basis, although the Supreme Court is going to hear full oral arguments. Uh, We'll get a decision that will decide this issue once and for all, probably uh, in February or shortly thereafter.
0: Well, I mean, the court usually doesn't. I mean, I wish the Supreme Court could rule from the bench, but they usually don't do that. They'll hear it in February. Are we more likely to hear that in an order in February or an order in, say, June when they like to flush out all the big ones?
10: Well, it could be the case that it's a June sort of thing, but my sense is that it will be sooner, and there are two reasons for that. Number one, uh, this is a proceeding on an emergency appeal from the Biden administration. Uh, and also, you know, the legal issues in this case aren't particularly difficult. Courts uh, Which blocked Biden from doing this uh, reached their decisions uh, within a matter of weeks. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of decisions from last term, especially... But the Supreme Court said uh, if you want to use administrative agency power to do something, you need to show that Congress you know clearly gave you that power that I think control here. Uh, in this case, Biden can't possibly show that Congress gave uh, him this power under an emergency act designed after 9/11 to give temporary reprieve to service members deployed overseas. That's what he's rely hanging his, his legal hat on and that
0: is a flimsy branch. I mean, and and knowing that, John Carlo, because like I said, you're the legal fellow and not me, but I've been following this. We kept looking at what gives them the authority. Oh, the HEROES Act. Well, that was all about service members deployed in the immediate aftermath. You know, folks going to Afghanistan and Iraq uh, and saying we can't very well, you know, tell them they're in default on their student loans. We'll give them relief. Is there any legal uh, leg that you can see uh, that the lawyers for, uh, for the Biden administration are going to be able to show to the court saying, well, no, no, you're wrong. There, there is some authority here. Uh, do they have anything to go on?
10: Well, the HEROES Act uh, is very broad and vaguely worded. Uh, and so you had the uh, White House counsel's office write a memo. Biden's, these are Biden's White House lawyers. And they said, "You know, it's so broad. It basically gives us whatever power to do whatever we want. But there were a couple things missing from that memo that I think really show that the Biden administration knows that it's on losing ground. Uh, the administration didn't make any attempt to deal with those Supreme Court precedents from last term that said, you know, you need some clear congressional appro- approval to do this sort of thing. Uh, and it also said, you know, this all depends on um, there. There's some uh, what we what I might call limiting language in the bill. For instance, you have to tie Uh, the reprieve from student loan payments or from student loan debt to a particular emergency and to to describe how people are harmed by that emergency. And Biden hasn't done that. He's just sort of vaguely said there's a COVID-19 pandemic. People are harmed by it. But the act requires more than that. He would have to show that Uh, But for his loan forgiveness, people are actually still suffering financial harms from COVID. He's made no attempt to do that. So, you know, he's going to forgive student loans or he wants to, for everybody who is in the top, uh, everybody in the top 95 percent of all income earners. In other words, unless you are in the top five percent, the very richest in America, you're going to get loan forgiveness. Uh, You don't need loan forgiveness. And that undermines his legal claim in a big way.
0: Well, and in fact, the fact that the pandemic, he declared it over, and then I know he formally extended it a few weeks after he told CBS News, no, no, the pandemic is over. So they can't even make up their mind whether the pandemic emergency is still going on or not, can they? And isn't the, is, aren't the court yes. justices going to ask, hey, didn't you declare this over back in September?
10: Yeah, that's an excellent point. Courts care about pretext. They want to make sure that if you're saying uh, as a president or an administrative agency head, you know, we have this power and we use it to do this. Courts really care that you're actually using the power uh, for what you say you are. Biden says he's doing it uh, for a COVID-19 emergency. But as you pointed out, uh, every other word out of his mouth on the COVID-19 pandemic is that it's over, we're moving on, you don't need to mask anymore, uh, the economy is doing great. Uh, so there's, a, there's a, a disconnect there and courts care about that.
0: Well, let me ask you about this. Does it matter or should it matter to the court if they were to say, well, Mr. President, if you need congressional authority, your party right now, at least for the next couple of weeks, controls the House, controls the Senate 50-50, but you got you got the tiebreaker in Kamala Harris. Why don't you just march over to Capitol Hill and say it's really important that we forgive the debts of 40 million people, uh, pass the bill and and hand him the authority? Uh, Does it should it matter or does it matter to the justices if the president could have and had the time in the interim to go to Congress and say, just pass a bill and tell me I can knock out this amount of the debt? It's not all of it for all people, but it's it's a lot of it. He could do that. Does that matter to the Supreme Court?
10: Yes, it does, because what it shows and you, you add to that the fact that many members of Congress, even on his side, Nancy Pelosi, for instance, have said in the past. The president doesn't have the power to do this. Congress has to do that. You put all that together, and what that shows is that Congress never actually gave the president uh, the power to do this by executive fiat. Uh, And so when the court is looking at the HEROES Act, vague though it is, it's going to ask itself, you know, does this actually give the president the power that he's claiming? All of this evidence from Congress, the fact that Congress has said no, the fact that members of Congress have said no, that speaks to the fact that this act does not give the president the power that he thinks it does.
0: Are they? Let me ask you something that's not sort of non-legal, John Carlo, and that is: Are they just going to say, well, "Yeah, we we understand. We don't have a leg to stand We're just going to quietly lose this case, but we have to make it look good as we're losing it, like like a team throwing a game, but saying we can't throw it so much that it's obvious we're throwing it." They're just going to you know, wait till February and say, we'll walk in, we'll make, we'll make a, uh, you know, we'll, we'll throw the Hail Mary. And when we lose, we'll just walk away from it because all we really wanted to do was promise the payoff going up to the November election.
10: Yeah, this is a win-win situation for Biden in a weird way, uh, no matter what happens, because he got to promise student loan forgiveness going into the election. And then when the Supreme Court almost inevitably, in my opinion, strikes down the plan, he's going to get to throw more uh, cold water, on uh, the evil Republican Supreme Court and uh, he'll have a nice enemy to point the fingers at even though you know as Bernie Sanders former spokesperson recently said uh, he knew that this was going to fail and he probably did know that that this was going to fail it was a political ploy Uh, you know he if he gets to do it he gets that political win if he doesn't get to do it he gets a political enemy uh, to point more fingers at going into his next election Uh, so you know if you if, if you're a cynic um then uh, this looks good for biden no matter what
0: i'm going to be the cynic on this one john carlo canaparo from the heritage foundation you're listening to the lars larson show and the radio northwest network welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you on a tuesday always glad to take your calls and this segment of the show is always brought to you by valhalla tea a perfect gift for the holidays helping veterans with every bag sold at valhalla our twitter poll today and this has to do with the story out of philadelphia but i could imagine it happening in seattle or portland An, a retailer in philadelphia owns a little store and a gas stop And he's finally hired armed security, armed with rifles, armed with AR-15 style rifles, you know, the kind that scare Nancy Pelosi half to death. He's added that security staff. And I said, should Northwest retailers add armed security staff to their stores? I'd say yes to that. I think just the sight of armed security armed with long guns, black guns, especially because, you know, black guns matter, um, that if you added that to the front of a store I'm not sure how many thieves would say, yep, yep, I'm going to go in there and get a bag full of stuff or a cart full of stuff and just walk out the front door. The intimidation factor might be enough. In any case, you can find the Twitter poll at Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. So I want to tell you what happened about two and a half hours ago. I had Kevin Staredon from the Oregon Firearms Federation, and in the middle of a short five-minute interview, he said, Lars, we just got word that a judge has knocked down Measure 114, the effective de facto gun purchase ban scheduled to take effect on Thursday, has now had a temporary restraining order imposed on it. And I got an email, and I know this is going to be confusing, and I don't expect the mainstream media, television, or the fish wrapper to straighten this out for you. But here's what happens. A restraining order from a judge says, whatever it is that they ask for a restraining order on, there's a restraining order on. Meaning, Measure 114 cannot go into effect on Thursday. And what the judge said was he said, I'm putting the restraining order on till the 13th of December. And I got an email from a bunch of you who said, well, what good does that do us? Another 10 days? Well, 10 days is one thing. But the second thing that you're probably not going to have explained to you is this. The judge said, I'm putting a TRO on measure 14. It is not going into effect on Thursday. Then on the 13th of December, the judge's issued. and I always like this idea, it's called a show cause order. He has issued a show cause order to the state of Oregon saying, show up in my courtroom, in this case in Harney County, and explain to me why I should not extend this order. Sounds like the judge is inclined to do it. So he's giving him about 10 days to show up in his courtroom, sorry, seven days, show up in his courtroom and explain why he shouldn't extend the order for, I don't know, 30 days, six days, nine, some other time period. If the state either doesn't show up, the TRO is extended if the state shows up and does not convince him. And one of the best things about this request for the TRO is that it actually cites Oregon's constitution. Because for all of us who are fans of the Second Amendment in the federal constitution, the state constitution of Oregon is so much better. I mean, it's, it's worded better and everything else, but it gets the same idea across. It's Article 1, Section 27. And I can read it for you. I've read it on the air before. The people shall have the right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state, but the military shall be kept in strict subordination to civilian power. Much better wording in a lot of ways than the Second Amendment. But when you start off with the people shall have the right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state, boy, that's pretty clear cut and you're going to have some knucklehead from Ellen Rosenblum's office, she's the attorney general, reliable left-wing Democrat lunatic, is going to show up in court, probably one of her underlings. She has one of the largest attorney general's offices in America. 1,200 people. I mean, it is bigger than most of the attorney general's offices around the country. She has a bigger office at 1,200 people Than many states that are bigger and have bigger populations so one of those jokers maybe more than one is going to have to show up in court and persuade this eastern oregon judge why section one article one section 27 of the oregon constitution does not suggest that measure 114 is unconstitutional not just under the second amendment but under the, the 20 section 27 of the oregon constitution uh russ welcome to the program what's on your mind today hey i got a question for you sure i hate to pester you go for it Um,
8: guns 114 yeah you can't buy a gun without doing this but my kids and i build guns yeah we're not buying a gun
0: we're only buying the lower that's the only thing that's authorized and the lower has a serial number on it and uh, as i understand measure 114 it it's says, not a gun well i'm not buying a gun i'm just you're buying a lower and and the problem is so Russ, the other thing that okay what's me? your question because we're going to run out of time go ahead
8: the other thing is <laughs> if they try to push this thing through Multnomah county needs to figure out we will all have concealed carry permits because we have to do these classes
0: no because the the class you have to take to get the permit to buy a gun is not the same i mean the state could make it the law that if you take the the, if you take the class to get a buying permit that it's the same as a carry permit but as i understand it the two are not the same and even if you take the class you'll then have to go get a carry permit as well as a permit to buy a gun and as far as the lower you're not going to be able to buy that. It's a serial numbered part Till you take the class and get the permit, and neither one exists right now. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs, but how do you explain them to your customers?
1: Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k flats. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business
0: startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds?
1: Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio.
2: Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to IRAadvantage.com. View the videos. And then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at IRAAdvantage.com.